The race is on, and we've turned this episode of the Race F1 podcast over to you, the listener, to answer the questions you've asked about Formula One, past and present. While we're still waiting impatiently for the Grand Prix season to get going, there's plenty to talk about as always, and we've got a great mix of contemporary topics and thought provokers from the past to delve into. I'm Ed Straw, and my guests with all of the answers are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Scott, how goes things in Sweden? I see you've got your patriotic football shirt on. Yeah, all good, actually. Um, On the subject of uh, Sweden and patriotism, uh, I'm actually in the process of... uh, of coming up with a with a crash helmet design for my uh, my rising uh, interest in esports. Uh, plus, I've always wanted to have sort of my own design just in case I ever do get involved in real world racing again and have my own. And I've decided because blue and yellow have always been my competition colours. Way back, going back to when I was eight or nine years old and had my first car. So blue and yellow has always been really cool for me. Obviously, being out here, it's the colours of uh, Sweden, so it works really well. So I'm going to have, I'm, I basically what I want to get done is a Ronnie Peterson style uh, crash helmet design. So a metallic blue base with some sort of golden yellow pinstriping and old style sort of block letters um, on the side. Uh, so yeah, so that is, uh, there, there's a, a genuine bit of, uh, of news for the podcast from Sweden there. Excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing uh, that design. My helmet design when I was racing was white with lots of scuff marks from uh, roll cages and that kind of thing because I was quite tall. Uh, I took up a lot of space in cars. I was very often uh, just sort of glancing it on uh, on roll cages and that kind of thing. Fortunately, never did that when uh, when crashing. Uh, Mark Hughes, did you have a helmet uh, design when you were when you were racing, or were, or were helmets not not compulsory back then? <laughs> yeah, I started. My my initial one was um, sort of. Uh, red red and white um stripes um but that one got stolen or rather the car it was in got stolen um and so i never got around to um livering the next one it was just plain white that's the uh, cheapest way of livering it yeah yeah and renny on new always had a white one and i thought he was pretty cool so there you go so it's a sort of red and white helmet colors are they the family helmet color it was um from nicky lauder's comeback um they, you know they when he when he first came back so um, my brother Warren raced like with a louder tribute helmet, um, and it was yeah it was it was it was that really because um, it was if it wasn't if it wasn't about Jill Villeneuve it was about Nicky Lauder so um, yeah the 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 red, the red and white was a, a louder tribute. So your so so Warren was if if you had a if you had that style as well and Lauder had had that style so Warren was the third fastest driver to to use that helmet color. Now you're just getting in the realms of um, um, fantasy. Now I don't want to upset my brother. I like the fact that it's about Nicky Lauda or Gilles Villeneuve because they're rightly or wrongly generally regarded at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of uh, driving. Although, uh... yeah, yeah, like the opposite opposite ends of the spectrum. You're right, but um, just both fantastic. Um, just love them both. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great drivers. Actually, I've just been uh, working on a piece that uh, that actually, by the time you hear this, will be on the race uh, website, which is therace.com, and don't forget the hyphen, about Lauda's last win at Zandvoort in 1985. So uh, if, you're a, if you're a Lauda fan, head to our website to have a look at that, but not before you've listened to us answering your many questions. And uh, I think uh, Villeneuve might come up a bit later in this, but we've got a mix of uh, questions ancient and modern. So we're going to rotate between us uh, fielding some of those questions and having a bit of a, a chat. 
But before we get on to those listener questions, Scott, I've got one for you quickly, because there's been one F1 driver in particular in the headlines over the weekend in Lando Norris. He's managed to become embroiled in controversy from the IndyCar iRacing event at Indianapolis held on Saturday. So we've had the 2019 Indy 500 winner, Simon Pagino, accused of taking him out. Norris calling the Frenchman salty, whatever that means. McLaren boss Zach Brown getting on the act as well. With proper row, sim racing really is becoming contentious, isn't it? Yeah, if anything, it just adds to the the realism, doesn't it? A bit of uh, controversy just to show that uh, people really do care about about this sort of stuff. So that element of uh, of racing is alive and well with uh, with, with the online version. Um, I guess a brief explanation. I'm not an uh, I'm not an expert in this, but um, basically uh, Norris and Pagano were involved uh, in a in an incident uh, when Norris was trying to go inside. Was it? I think it might have been Ray Hall. Um, and whether it was Ray Hall moving right to to avoid him or something called net code, which is a phenomenon that occurs in online racing because with so many people connected to the server, uh, it can be a bit a bit of guesswork basically from the from the software or whatever you, however you want to call it um, that basically uh, positions the car on track actually differently to to where it is. So. Uh, it's possibly it's possibly that that, that I racing thought that Norris's car was further to the right and hit Ray Hall's, or Ray Hall's was further to the left and therefore made contact. Either way, Ray Hall ends up going from low to high on the track and takes out Pagano, uh, which uh, Pagano and his, his spotter seem to think is entirely Norris's fault because he's making an overtake that they believe wouldn't happen in reality. Uh, so yeah, sorry that was a that was a long-winded version. Long uh, long story short. Uh, Pagano then rejoins, uh, and it's quite clear in the in the video that he post he, he well, not the video that he posts the the live stream that was being conducted that uh, he was clearly after some kind of retaliatory action. Um, he told Norris uh, that he didn't mean to take him out. He he only wanted to slow him up. But it's quite clear from the from from Pagano's live live uh, feed that um, as he rejoins, he he's looking for Lando and he and he, and he wants to take him out. Um, it isn't just a case of slowing him up. He 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 did explicitly state that he wanted to uh, basically to to wreck Land, uh, Lando's race. So so that was a that, that was a, a massive shame. Um, and basically, Pagano waited for for Norris, who was uh, leading or he, he was in the lead group, and he'd just taken the lead of the race. Um, so Pagano waited for for Norris, who was in the lead, and basically claimed that he was slowing down to come into the pit lane, but he wasn't. He was holding it on the racing line. Uh, and then he backed off to the point where where, where Norris uh, obviously didn't expect that action to be taken, and, and Norris smashed into the back of him, and they both and they both uh, crashed in quite spectacular fashion. Yeah, and we also saw a chaotic finish with Pato Award hitting leader Marcus Ericsson at the last corner, then Santino Ferrucci wiping out Oliver Askew just before the line, all allowing Australian supercars ace Scott McLaughlin to win. The fallout from these clashes, as well as the Pagano Norris incident on social media, has been massive. Some have slated the drivers involved for letting IndyCar down, others are baffled by these reactions, saying it's only a game. So where do you stand? I really don't like the I really don't like the suggestion that it's just a game. I think that is such a cop out in terms of standards and and just decent driver etiquette because the bottom line is this isn't just a game this and this matters enough for it to be broadcast live. It matters enough for all of the teams and the drivers to be involved. The sponsors love it. You know, it's taken really seriously. Um so I really I don't it is a it is a game. It is taking place online. It is not taking in taking place in the real world but just because it's not in the real world it doesn't mean that the racing's not real the big problem for me is that 
these sort of events thrive on the legitimacy of what you're watching. And we know that professional drivers doing sim racing isn't the same as esports competitors who live and breathe the stuff and are at an even higher level. But it is serious enough for people to be properly invested in it. Um, you know, there's money to be made in betting on it as well. And I just think it shows a lack of class to 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 do what Pagano did, to do what Santino Ferrucci did, a NASCAR style deliberate attempt to 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 wipe out the 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 leading car and and steal the victory he succeeded in wiping out the leading car but um he he managed to lose out on the win so i guess there's um there's some karma there i just think on this sort of on this sort of thing this is the only racing we've got there's a lot of people who dedicate a lot of time and effort to to being good at this stuff and there's a lot of people that devote time to to watching what they want to be a, a fair honest and authentic competition and the actions of the likes of Pagano and Ferrucci rob uh, rob fans of something proper, and they they rob their their competitors of a, of a legitimate race. Well, if nothing else, it shows that events in the esports world can have a big impact on the world of physical racing, something that drivers really are learning the hard way. But let's get on with what we're here for, which is what the listeners have asked us to talk about. So first up, a question from Tessura Mendes, uh, which I'm directing to Scott, which is, what are your thoughts on the comments James Allison made regarding Lewis Hamilton's lack of use of the dark art? So can you put a little bit of meat on the bone of what that was about and, and what you think of it? In a in a really uh, in a really wide ranging uh, conversation uh, that that Mercedes uh, put together with with James Allison, James uh, the Mercedes technical director talked uh, talked about all sorts, including um, Lewis Hamilton's integrity, uh, uh, how he conducts himself on track and off track, and James waxed lyrical about uh, Lewis's aversion to the dark arts of, of racing. Not uh, he said you you'll really struggle to find. Uh, evidence of Lewis doing something ugly on track uh, throughout his his career and and James said that 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 was unprecedented amongst multiple world champions I think um Mark wrote a Mark wrote a great piece that um orig- we had originally had this idea of doing a, a sort of multi-voice piece between us sort of breaking down different elements of world cha- of the the different world champions and how they went about racing and then um uh Mark Mark put put something together that was uh was basically just so good when when we read it when I read it the first time um it ended up going up on on the race uh, the race website as as a standalone and it was uh it made it clear that that Lewis isn't Lewis isn't on his own in in racing fairly as a as a world champion but I certainly think if you take his generation and really the majority of champions over the last 30 or 40 years, certainly Lewis is much less, um, or well, I would say he's better at judging where the line is and making sure he doesn't go go over the line. And I think uh, I, I, it's, it's definitely worth, it's, it's a really good question to, to start with because we're, we're basically push, pushing people towards the website and away from the podcast, but it's really worth uh, reading what Mark wrote. Uh, on this subject because it really it really puts those comments into context and it's it shines a very honest light on the the progression of the dark dark arts as as part of the the tool set if you will as as f1 developed and world championships got a little bit more aggressive with one another i think um you know you've got to have a certain toughness in the car you can't just be nice all the time in the car but it's as scott says it's a question of um, where that line is, where you judge that line to be, and how good you are at going up to it, absolutely to the edge of it, as needed, whenever when you 
whenever you need to without going over it. And I think that's what Lewis is fantastically good at. Um, and then the, the piece was putting it in historical context, saying that originally when the sport was much more dangerous than it is now, really it was no, nobody uh, raced aggressively, very few anyway, they, and they soon weeded themselves out. Um, but as the cars, be, circuits and then the cars became safer, um, you started to see it creeping in as, as drivers realized you could use those margins. So it's, it's sort of inevitable, really. You, you, just like when you, um, you you say that a new tire for a, a road car has got more grip and therefore it's, it's, it's safer, um, people just end up using the grip more and, and going around the corners faster. So it was a similar process to that in, in, in that the it started to... Um, become apparent that there were bigger margins available, and um, the drivers used them, and began to use intimidation as a a tool in their in, in their kit. And it, it started creeping in really in the eighties, and it was taken to a a new level really by um, Ayrton Senna, and then it, it it inspired a whole lot of people observing to. Um, adopt similar tactics subsequently, but um, in many ways, uh, Lewis is a sort of a step back from that, and it, it still races race very aggressively, as, as Nico Rosberg would be able to testify. But um, yeah, I don't, I can't recall him ever having gone over that line. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's absolutely right. And we should just stress there that we're not talking about drivers never making mistakes because although they're very rare, particularly now, he has made misjudgments on track, but they've been honest uh, honest mistakes, should we say. And, and it's good because I think with Hamilton, it is important to him to kind of uphold those standards. He's very aware of the impact he has as a role model on younger drivers. He still has a keen interest in karting. That's uh, genuinely important to him. So I think it's uh, it's positive that he... Uh, he, he considers that to be to be so important and is sort of showing you don't have to do that. Of course, some will argue that it's easier to do that when you've got a more dominant car or whatever, but I think he's been in enough battles for us to say that that's a, a kind of legitimate pattern. So I, I largely uh, agree with James Allison on that one. Uh, next question, we're going back slightly in time. Question for you, Mark. Prime Juan Pablo Montoya versus Prime Kimi Raikkonen. Who would you take? So I guess the first thing to do there is to find when those drivers were in their prime. Yeah, um, Kimi and all his time at McLaren, I would say, was his prime. Um, Juan Pablo had a shorter career. I actually think he was at the, pretty much the same level all the way through because it was quite a short career, 2001 to six. Um, to answer the question, Kimi for me, he was more complete. Uh, he was quicker. He was devastatingly fast at his peak in the McLaren years. Um, Montoya couldn't live with them when they were paired there, which I'm sure was a, a contributory reason for Montoya leaving mid-season in 2006. Um, Montoya was fantastic at the wheel-to-wheel racing, and he had this incredible car control as well. He could ambush and overtake out of anywhere, and just creative in, in the way he was able to uh, race people wheel-to-wheel. Definitely one of the sport's greatest overtakers, right up there with Mansell. But his style was less subtle than Raikkonen's, whose feel through the fast corners allowed him to make incredibly few inputs. There's the, 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 the distinction to be made between early 
Kimmy sort of in the sabre years when he was like flicking the car over curbs and things and looked really spectacular. And Kimmy a couple of years in when he really had his peak. And it, that was all a, a much more subtle, nuanced blend of, of qualities, really. And that, that's the key to ultimate speed in an F1 car, how, how being able to just feel where that edge is and just sit it there without any further input. Um, Schumacher was fantastic at it, too. Very few have been able to do that as well as Pete Kimmy. Um, Kimmy was just lower wattage as well, less disruptive within a team. I think if you're a top team, that's what you'd go for. Maybe if you're a struggling team with an imbalanced car, you might go with Montoya to bully the car to a lap time and make up places in the race. But as a thoroughbred, purist, fantastically fast driver, Pete Kimmy every time. Yeah, Montoya's an interesting case, isn't he? Because we know how good he could be, but... A slightly unfulfilled F1 career, you would overall say. But yeah, Raikkonen, that sensitivity, that feel, uh, the just just even down to the way he was able to, at his peak, just feed in the power and feel the grip and adjust adjust how aggressive he could be on the throttle based on the balance of the car, where the weight was, etc. Really tremendous, uh, tremendous sensitivity. Uh, but I think it's difficult with how good Kimi Raikkonen was at his absolute best to... Um, who to pick but uh, not not to pick him although i think you'd probably take uh you take kimmy if you're picking them at their peak but potentially you might pick montoya if you're looking at more on average over over uh, over their careers although obviously montoya's was much much shorter i think i'd uh, i think i'd agree with uh with, with mark i'd take uh, a, a prime kimmy just because i think uh I think if you're looking at someone who can sort of piece everything together i think that was one of the things that i always sort of uh, I remember uh, watching the, the the pair of them, and while Montoya was the sort of driver who would uh, arguably, maybe as 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 Mark said in wheel to wheel combat, especially maybe Montoya excites you a little bit more. But I just think if you look at it pragmatically, I reckon uh, Kimmy is. Um, I reckon Kimmy would at their peak just just edge him over one lap. I reckon he'd. Uh, I reckon they'd be fairly even in race trim, but over a season, I can see Kimmy. Uh, Kimmy, Kimmy taking it. Um, I was going to uh, follow this up by throwing the next question to you, Ed, uh, stealing your role as the presenter and flipping and turning the tables. Um, so there's a bit of a link because it involves a fin. Uh, Danny Herbert asked, "Do you think George Russell will replace Valtteri Bottas or a retiring Hamilton at Mercedes, and if so, when?" Well, there's there's multiple parts to this question. The first is whether George Russell's a driver who Mercedes would want in their works team and I think on the current trajectory very likely yes uh, he's in the middle year of a, a three-year Williams placement so that the timeline is very malleable uh, on this I don't think it helps that this season's being uh, condensed and probably we're not going to see uh, see a full season as that will slightly limit the the development although I don't think there's any chance of there being much change next year. I think at, at Mercedes in 2021, we're going to see Hamilton and Bossas again, barring something uh, very unusual happening. Obviously, we're still waiting for those uh, those deals to be uh, to be formalised, as as it were. But Russell has unquestionably got the ability to become a driver capable of doing a very good job in a, a top team. I'd argue he was by a tiny margin probably the most impressive of of the rookies last year, which is quite a tricky call because I think you can make a case for any of him, Albon and Norris being the strongest. They were all very impressive. Russell didn't have the chance to really battle properly with everyone, so he had a very different challenge to the others, but did a very good professional job, 
quick driver demolished robert kibitza which while it's a very different robert kibitza to the uh to the original shall we say that you can only beat what's in front of you and that that still counts for for something so good sustained performance we know he's quick we know he can race well i think the key for russell is he needs to show he can thrive in a very tight midfield if williams can get him there you want him in situations where he's a a Q2 marginal, should we say, or in an ideal world, it'd be great if he was a Q3 marginal. I don't think Williams is going to be at that point. So you really see these situations where that half a tenth or tenth in qualifying makes all the difference, nailing those key passes, those key in-out laps, when the differences between finishing, say, tenth and twelfth are razor thin. That was the one thing we couldn't see very often with him last year, just because of the situation he was in. So Russell, definite possibility for Mercedes. I think all things being equal, it's a good chance he'll end up there. But I don't think it's going to be as a, it won't be before 2022 at the earliest. Can I follow that up with a question to Mark? Is that allowed? Can I you, ask you, my own you, question? You thought you, I mean, you're, you're throwing us into complete anarchy, but I'll <laughs> allow it to see where you're going with it. I just wanted to ask Mark what he thinks is the determining factor for the when. In, when, when, when is some, when can you say with any degree of certainty, uh, if a driver is ready for for that kind of move move does it is it based on um the quality of the team that they've done a season with do you need to see sort of a longer spell with russell at a team like williams than for example ferrari saw with charles leclerc at a more competitive sauber outfit for example it's a very delicate balance and point i think scott um because you can um Promote a guy too soon if he's not quite uh, ready to go up against, you know, if if he went up against Lewis, if he was a Valtteri replacement, for example, um, he might never recover from that. He might never recover from, um, you know, not not being not being yet at his uh, full potential, and he might never reach his full potential if you do it too early. Um, on the other hand, I think you can go stale in a comp- a less competitive car. And you could be ready um, without it being, you know, particularly obvious. But all of a sudden, if you'd put him in the top car, you would have you would you would have seen great performances from him. So, I yeah, I think they've just got to monitor it very carefully. Um, it's 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 extra difficult for George because Valtteri's doing such a great job in in that car. Um, in in terms of what the team needs, it's a you know team that by just Gravity tends to send her around Lewis, um, and Valtteri has to find his own space in there. But he's doing that, and he's doing it in a way that um, every everyone's the, the, the team still functions beautifully well. And I think George is perfectly capable of doing that as well. Um, I think he's the, the the personality that that would be able to do that. And um, I think he's calm and rational, um, but still very competitive. Um, I think three years in a, um, a little team might be a little too long. I think one year might have been a bit too early. Um, so, yeah, it really a lot depends on uh, Valtteri as well. Well, he could end up with effectively almost two and a half seasons, couldn't he? So uh, perhaps uh, 2020 might uh, might help that uh, that timing. Well, let's move on to another question for you, Scott. Uh, Matt Burkett asks, as F1 races can only be held on tracks with an FIA Grade 1 licence, which existing track that isn't a Grade 1 do you think would be a good addition to the calendar if it got an upgrade in order to host a Grand Prix? 
that is a that is a really difficult question because there's lots of uh, circuits on the list that that have grade one that have either hosted Grand Prix or or need to be renovated. So it's just because you're a grade two doesn't mean it's a simple um, it's a it's a simple upgrade. I think you know not to get too uh, not to get too patriotic, but just from from a history point of view, some of the images that I've seen from the uh for, from from the past i would i would love to see uh a formula one car on the grand prix loop at brands hatch i would just i've been out there for junior single seater series and gt racing and that sort of thing and it's just one of my favorite places to see an f1 uh, to see a car on the limit and to see an f1 car on the limit at brands at, at brands hatch going into hawthorns or or anywhere really on the back part of the circuit and also having a grand prix in my home county of kent would be uh would be quite cool so i i'd, I'd go brands any any tracks grabbing your fancy mark um yeah i think i'd, I'd love to see cars bag a long beach um but that's just that's a separate uh thing i think we're going to be doing something on that soon um just the, the um images of cars there over the bumps and over the crests and the risers you just saw them really in spectacular attitudes and you saw the drivers having to wrestle with them um that, that was always one of my favorite tracks i thought it was a great shame that we uh, that formula one left there yeah definitely I'd, uh, I'd i'd agree with that one and that's that one comes up very very commonly i'm I, I just going to throw in one that's uh technically isn't eligible for this answer but would have been not so long ago which is algarve but it's but it's your podcast and you'll do exactly. what you want <laughs> i make the rules but algarve had got its grade one license uh uh officially i think i think it had it because it had an f1 test license at one stage because i've i've actually seen f1 cars run at algarve uh, they did a test there pre-season in 2009. Um, seem to remember it hailing at one, at one occasion, but it's a it's a for a modern example of a circuit. It's it's really good, popular with the drivers. Variety of corners, undulating, and it's it's one that it's not completely impossible. We'll uh, we we could see uh, a Grand Prix at uh, one day. I think that would be quite fun. But there's there's uh, yeah there's a, there's a good number of, uh, of of circuits around the place. I just wanted to pick up on something that, that that Mark said. We have got a feature running on uh, on the website about uh, old tracks F1 could and should bring back. And I believe uh, all things uh, being equal, uh, similar to what you said earlier, by the time this podcast comes out, you will be able to find that article on online, and it's worth uh, it's worth reading because I've had a I've obviously we've obviously got a sneak peek at what's on the list, and it'll bring back uh, it'll bring back some cool memories for 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 all sorts for different generations of fans. Yeah, there's some interesting uh, choice on there. I, I've chosen a circuit. That I think I'm going to get a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, social media complaints about, but I think it's a much maligned circuit. So check check that feature to read about that. Right, next question. We're going back to the past. Uh, directed at you, Mark. Can you tell the story of Phoenix, a team that should have raced in 2002 with Prost GP chassis and the old Arrows engines? That's from Mister Chiank. Uh, I don't know if that's pronounced correctly uh, via Twitter. This, of course, was a uh, a continuation of of the of the Prost team that was trying very hard right up to the to the, the early stages of the the two thousand and one uh, two thousand and two season to to get on the grid. So what what can you tell us about it? Yeah, well, Prost Grand Prix went out of business at the end of two thousand and one, um, and Tom Walkinshaw's friend uh, Chuck Nicholson, who was a former um, TWIXJS racer, he was the guy who who fronted the Phoenix project and. Um, he he won the bid to buy the the Prost team's assets, um, including three chassis, 
Um, but a bit like a couple of years ago when Force India changed ownership mid-season after falling into administration and became Racing Point, the question was whether the new owner had bought the entry into the 2002 season in this case, as well as the assets, um, because that recognized team entity was worth $12 million of team payments in 2002. Now, both Walkinshaw with Arrows and Paul Stoddard with Minardi were struggling, struggling along on the bare bones of staying in existence, and indeed Arrows went out of business later in that season. Stoddard had also bid for the Prost assets, but just with the idea of using the cars and other bits and pieces. And he was pleased with the absence of the actual Prost team in O2 because it meant Minardi would have a better chance of getting some team money from F1 by finishing one place higher in the championship. Um, but he lost out in the bid to Nicholson. Um, but even worse than that for him was that the nicholson Walkinshaw plan of keeping that team going as well as Arrows. So Stoddard was very active in trying to get it stopped. Uh, Walkinshaw was clearly reckoning on not spending too much money on keeping this sort of ghost team going, just turning up with the cars and cashing the team payments. So they'd paid $2 million for the assets, but would potentially get $15 million of team payments. And obviously the plan was to keep the running cost to nearly nothing. The, the, the car was being prepared from a corner of the Arrows workshop. Um, there was no engine supply with the deal, so they borrowed an old heart engine from the Arrows three-seater had that grafted onto the back of the Prost chassis, which had been designed for a Peugeot engine. Uh, they couldn't get it ready in time for Melbourne, and they presented two nose cones to the scrutineers. Um, <laughs> just, really just to register that Phoenix existed. And obviously the nose cones failed scrutineering. Um, but they apparently had uh, two cars uh, at Malaysia for the next race, but the FIA refused to allow them an entry. And that's when the court case started. Nicholson, fronting for Walkinshaw, was claiming that the FIA was restricting him when it had no right to. Um, the court found that the FIA was perfectly entitled to do this because Nicholson had effectively just bought some old bits, not the Prost team's entry into the 2002 championship. Um, so this came as just a further blow to Walkinshaw's efforts at trying to keep Arrows afloat. It wasn't a real team. It was just a last desperate act to stay in business. That's one of my favourite answers uh, I think that we've ever done on one of these podcasts. And the the the, the phrase the phrase the nose cones failed scrutineering is going to stick with me now for for a long time. Ed, you're going to have to go some way to make me laugh the way parts of that story made me laugh because the next question is for you, uh, and it's a bit more modern. Um, maybe there will still be some politics at play here. You can decide. Uh, Callum Daly asks, uh, he says, there have been some rumours recently regarding a possible move for Signs to replace Vettel at Ferrari. What are your thoughts on this? And as a follow-up, should he leave McLaren? Who do you think could replace him? Well, that's uh, it's a not very funny question, so I'm not, I'm not going to make you laugh in this one, unfortunately, unless I come up with a risible response. I think Ferrari, all things being equal, would like to keep Vettel uh, for, for next year. Yes, he's out of contract, but with continuity of cars, etc., it makes sense for him to continue. I suspect that probably will happen, Vettel continuing, although it's still not done. So there's there's lots of scope for something going wrong. That if you're Ferrari, you, you'll have a list of uh, of people you'd be interested in, and 100% Carlos Sainz Jr. should be on that list. So Sainz, Ricardo, Lando Norris is probably another driver you'd you'd look at. Uh, Sainz, I believe, 
its original McLaren contract was two years, but there may well be an option uh, for a third year in that one as well. Um, so how available is isn't I'm not entirely sure uh, about, but definitely you you would look at you would look very 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 seriously at, at Science. He's an extremely good driver. We talked about this actually on our McLaren podcast uh, last week. He's brilliant executor of races, quick driver, good qualifier. He ticks all the boxes and took another step forward last year, and I think he do uh, he do a really good a good job at Ferrari. If Science was to leave. Then I think McLaren's uh, McLaren's uh, replacement should be Daniel Ricciardo because were Science to end up at Ferrari, that means Ricciardo's not ending up there. Ricciardo's out of contract. McLaren's been interested in him in the past. If Renault isn't showing the upward mobility that that McLaren's showing, it would make sense for Ricciardo to go there. Cracking driver, very motivated. You know, perfect choice. And I think you know this comes down to the fact that Ricciardo and Science are two of the drivers that will be right at the top of any team's list if they had a vacancy. Could um could Vettel end up at McLaren? Do you think, Mark? I mean, I don't really see it, but I see every now and again he seems to get linked link there. If if he gets shunned from Ferrari but wants to stay in F one, maybe he'll he'll try and get in at McLaren or Red Bull. Yeah, I mean, as Ed says, I think um, Seb is still um, Ferrari's um, number one choice for that for that seat, but whether he'd um, be prepared to uh, go there on the terms Ferrari will offer. I I, I don't know. So at that point, if if it gets to that point, it would be then Seb's decision. Well, do I still want to do this so much that I'll continue somewhere else, or does he take that as his cue for retirement? And if he decided he was going to continue, well, yeah, McLaren would be probably the the best available options in in that scenario. Um, I could, I, yeah, I could see it happening. I don't, I don't think it's uh, the number one most likely scenario for me. I think you will continue with Ferrari, but um, yeah, I don't think it's impossible. Well, Scott, you're up now. Uh, will Dodds asks: With revenues likely to fall if behind closed doors races become commonplace, how big a threat is the virus to F1's existence? A very big question there for you. Yeah, I'll answer it seriously, um, which will be a first for me. I think F1 itself is um, is okay. I, I not there's no absolute guarantee, obviously, but I think it is uh, in a position financially with Liberty Media to to ride out the crisis. I think it's got the capital to to do that. There's been a complex series of transactions within the Liberty uh, Media company structure that's freed up more than a billion dollars in uh, liquidity for F1 to deploy. Uh, as it's as it sees fit, I think it's going to. Uh, I think various measures it's put its best foot forward in terms of saving the ten teams that are on the grid at the moment. So, I think considering the circumstances, this is the best chance it's got of riding out the the crisis without um, losing any teams. It's obviously impossible to say with certainty whether or not all the manufacturer teams will stay in their current form because. You never know whether or not a, a company or a boardroom level is going to turn around and say that they need to cut F1 to to protect the business because ultimately Formula One's not the bread and butter for a lot of these companies with the exception of uh, Ferrari. I would say that all of the, the, the teams that have serious investors to satisfy are vulnerable to, to an extent. So I think F1, I think F1 as a championship survives this. 
it certainly doesn't survive it in the form that we we know it because there is going to be uh, the technical rules have been delayed. There's going to be a reduction in the budget cap, but we just don't quite know uh, how much that will be. And there, there could be a changing of the the pecking order. I think there's also a second part to this question is about motorsport as a whole, uh, which I think does stand to be uh, seriously under threat because of the virus. I think there's going to be a lots of lots of series uh, that um, unfortunately will will probably become casualties if not this season, then over the next two or three years as uh, as like circumstances play out. Uh, and I think there will be teams as well that, that that struggle to to the end of it. There's been you know, some serious players at the FIA have likened this to the fallout of uh, in things uh, things like the Great Depression and the Second World War in terms of uh, needing a, a total reset and build up from the grassroots again. You know that's that's an attitude that's shared at the very top of the F1 by the likes of Jean Todd and and Graham Stoker. So. It is. It's a very, very, very serious uh, time for for motorsport to navigate as a whole. F one being at the pinnacle, being the richest of those championships, it's got the absolute best chance of getting through it without being. Not, it's going to be fundamentally affected, but without being put to ruin, shall we say? Yeah, and plenty of work being done to to try and stabilise things. So it's really just a question of how much F one has changed. But I imagine a few years down the line, it'll uh, it'll be carrying on. Very similar to to always, for better or worse. Some of that will be for for good reasons. Some of that will be not not so good. Well, let's move back into the past now. With a question for you, Mark. This is a, a two part question. The first bit is: Why is Gilles Villeneuve's win in Harama eighty one considered to be one of the greatest drives of all time? Yet Thierry Boutsen's win at Hungary in nineteen ninety derided as one of the worst. Now that comes from a certain Andrew Van der Berg, who is of course all of our bosses uh, here. <laughs> Uh, here at the here at the race there's a supplementary question from leo gorman another uh another motorsports uh writer who who says if the harama race happened today would it be appreciated or derided so that the short version of those races spain 81 villeneuve they're not especially good ferrari kept a train of uh, cars behind him won the race thierry Bootson in 1990 at hungary took a took his third and final win for williams with a no-stop strategy holding off uh senna uh to the to the checkered flag so yeah mark how how do you want to tackle the various elements of that question i think it was bootson's haircut i think that was the difference he had that sort of <laughs> stupid bowl cut didn't he um if anything if anything Thierry bootson's splendid hair surely augments his legend <laughs> um no i think Gilles Villeneuve had proven already to be one of the fastest and most exciting drivers of all time. And in 8081, that's a period, there was a real frustration among fans that he was driving this dog of a Ferrari. He just won Monaco on a car that shouldn't have been even in the front half of the field, so making it seem like he could do miracles. So when circumstances made it possible for him to do it again the very next race, it was fantastically thrilling. And to watch him on the verge of possibility of pulling this off but against that train of faster cars was real edge of the seat stuff that the fans were really invested in they they wanted to see him pull off the impossible again Um, in terms of the quality of the drive and the demands yes Bootson's drive was quite similar but Bootson was simply a good solid driver capable of winning if everything was in place he drove a perfect pressure race there in Hungary though as Williams FW13 was a much better car relative to the opposition than the 81 Ferrari but even disregarding that, it wasn't as exciting a prospect watching an OK driver fend off the greatest of his time, Senna, as watching the greatest of his time, Villeneuve, fending off the rest. You don't want to root for the lesser driver to be the greater one. You want it to be a meritocracy. But 
you do want a route for the greater driver finding a way to defeat the lesser drivers and better cars. So taken in isolation, those two races were much the same, but you'd need no knowledge of who any of those drivers were not to have that context. I think that's the reason why they're perceived in very different ways. Um, as to whether it, Bootson's drive would be... Uh, Villeneuve's drive would be derided now or celebrated. No, I think it would still be celebrated. If it, you know, given given that it it was the same uh, personalities involved, I think um, he would capture the imagination in just the way he did at the time. Um, and I think it would be um, a, still a fantastically thrilling contest in a, in mod context. It, it is interesting sometimes how the perception of uh, of who what the drivers involved are does impact the perce- perception. I'd agree with your estimation of those. I mean, Bootson's win on on that day was a really re- really fine one. I'd argue. Um, you know, he's struggling with with brake problems. His his left rear tire was was uh, was going, and and in fact, Senna on his way to trying to catch him turfed uh, Nanini off at the uh, at the chicane as well with a with a slightly uh, a- a- aggressive pass. So I, I think that boots and win deserves to go down a, a, as a as a great win as well. But sometimes I think that the, probably the crux of this is that great wins by not great drivers sometimes get ignored a bit. Because sometimes there are days when the stars align for a kind of decent performers and they do something wonderful, but the great drivers obviously do it consistently. And Villeneuve was was able to do this. I do think there'd be, if that happened today, a little bit of. I think there'd be a certain amount of miserableness on uh, on from certain corners of social media about drives because you could compare Ricardo's drive at Monaco uh, when he won to to Bootsons, and a lot of people were miserable about that acting as if it was really 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 easy which which frankly it, it it wasn't i think there's a little bit of a tendency for people to just run down performances needlessly and uh, hamilton's in monaco last year under pressure from verstappen i think the factor for for both of those races i don't know about the two of you but it seems quite easy for people to criticize those wins because it's monaco and in modern times monaco is uh, just assumed to be a procession and on a Sunday it's no challenge as long as you keep it out the wall um, because it's impossible to to overtake. I would like to think that in 10 or 20 years time, Ricardo's uh, drive after he lost the MGUK, didn't he? The Renault MGUK failure. I'd like to think that that win, um, particularly after it came, was it a year after he was robbed or two years after he was robbed of uh, of an authentic uh, victory in in Monaco and Hamilton's defence against Verstappen last year? I'd like to think that in ten or twenty years' time, we'll look, people will look back on that fondly. But whether or not the the two of you think that people will have such rose tinted glasses on the internet in ten or twenty years' time, I don't know. Yeah, I dread I dread to think uh, how how the internet commentary will have gone in two decades. Well, I'll throw the next question to you, Ed, to bring it back to uh, to to the present as we've sort of gone from the past to the future there. Um, Kieran Dudson asks, do you think that F1 may need to push hard for some new teams to join for the regulation change to bolster the grid in case some of the current teams fall off? So a bit of a follow-up to the existential crisis that F1 faces that we were talking about a little while ago. I'll have to answer no to that, which is a slightly for, for slightly complicated reasons because gearing up to run a formula one team even for the new regulations requires monstrous investment enormous lead time etc etc and i think if there was to be something like that happening it would probably be a little bit it'd be very half-baked potentially unless there's someone out there who's really got massive resources there are a few credible projects going on but 
I think pushing for any new ones is is going to be very very uh, optimistic. Formula One sadly is just not geared up for new teams to come in. The real focus should be ensuring that the ten existing teams can continue to exist, can continue to race, and if any of the the major backers of the teams, for example Renault, because people have speculated Renault's involvement could go, we need to make sure that those teams work in a way that they can be picked up by a by a new owner in the future, much like Racing Point. Uh, was when uh, when Force India uh, ran out of uh, as steam financially, just to make sure that those ten entities continue to to work. I think Formula One would benefit from being more accessible for for new teams, but I don't see there are things in the twenty twenty one regulations that make it a little bit more that do make the twenty twenty two regulations. I should say now they've been put back that make it a little bit more accessible and possible, but it's still hugely complicated. It's not like the old days where you know a good F two team could ramp up a little bit get a few people in and and build a, a grand prix car it's it's just not that that simple what do you think mark yeah formula one is it's not at that scale it, the scale is too big for that um and that's one of the things it needs to address probably in the in the, as we look to the years ahead um it, it the the size of the teams is probably too big for the circumstances in which they exist now um and so as I think we will inevitably see it become um, um, a smaller sport. And in those circumstances, you may be able to conceive of um, new teams possibly being attracted to it, specialist teams probably, <clears throat> rather than automotive. Um, but I think to to be thinking of new teams being able to replace existing teams is is a non-starter really the if the existing teams are in trouble it's it's for a reason it's it's not that they're bad badly run teams it's because of the circumstances the environment in which it exists and it wouldn't be any better for any new team in fact it'd probably be a lot worse well moving on scott uh Esports is a big thing at the moment, obviously, with no no real racing really going on. Uh, this question from Tom Corley is, in this age of virtual Grand Prix, could you have an F1 journalist's race? He suggests he'd like to see Mark Hughes put his money where his mouth is. I'm not sure what you've been mouthing off about, uh, Mark, but perhaps someone could hook Nigel <laughs> Roebuck up with a simulator. And then the, the, the second question from Kevin Joyce saying, could we see Mark investing in a simulator? Because rumour has it, Assetto Corsa has mods available for Riley Choppers. Now, before, Mark, you delve in and commit yourself to something on esports, we're going to have our resident uh, esporter yeah. Scott Mitchell who uh, did turn up in the, the race all-star esport battle uh, brought to you by Rocket uh, recently and uh, you had a you, you performed actually surprisingly well I would say but you're getting quite into your esports stuff as uh, as well so F1 journalist race would you would you win it uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say I would win it um, I would like to think I'd have half a chance of being competitive um, I'd enjoy it I, I think there is uh, the, one of the good things is um, a lot of the journalists in Formula One the there's there is a there is a passion for for racing involved and i do um i do get uh i do get annoyed at the suggestion that sport i've heard uh when i was at university we were told um that there was a general ill feeling from so-called proper journalists to sports journalists because sports journalists were just fans with typewriters and my response to my lecturer when he said that was jokes on him because i don't use a typewriter uh but there is a genuine passion for for motor racing amongst a, a lot of the the Formula One journalists. As a result, as we sort of touched on throughout uh, earlier in this podcast, uh, quite a few of us have uh, racing backgrounds of of certain certain sort of uh, quality, shall we say, or, or success. Um, so I think it would be I think it would be great fun. I'm really curious to know what 
Mark putting his money where his mouth is means. Have Mark, have you been have you been sort of suggesting on Twitter that you'd be absolutely smashing everybody if you just only had a simulator you could use? <laughs> no, no. Um I I think this has arisen from conversations I've had with uh Tom Corley himself. Um Tom Corley is um possibly one of the uh well he tells me that he's he's one of the world's greatest uh, jazz pianists, and and I believe him. But uh, yeah, how do how do you know? Um, so yeah, <laughs> that's that's what he's talking about. Um, as for I not not really got into it. Um, to be honest, to, it's 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 a to, I tell you what, listening to Daria Franchitti talk about it. Um, there was a podcast that the race did um, a couple of weeks ago. Claire Claire Cottingham was asking about it, and that was fascinating because he was saying how difficult it was for him to transition between you know being a, a real racing driver and being a, an, an e-racer. And he said the most difficult thing about it is you can't judge the car in sim by feel because obviously there isn't any. It, it, it all has to be learned, and. I'd say that it's a very interesting um, discussion because it's a different core skill, but there's some overlapping skills. So the the sim, but the similarities are just in the routine functions. You know, the, the knowledge of the track, the understanding of where buttons are, the understanding of what race and etiquette is. Those things. There's competitiveness, so that's obviously that you have that in common. Um, there's learned skills, um, and both real and sim have that. But then there's the core inner sort of physiology that determines who's quick in a real car and who isn't. And if that's not there, you can be the most competitive person on the planet and do the most intense preparation of anyone ever, and you still won't be quick in a real car. You'll be okay, but you'll not be at F1 level. And in that core skill, there isn't crossover. And it was fascinating listening to Dario talk about this. Um, So... You can't judge the car and sim by field because there isn't any, so it all has to be learned, which equally, obviously, is just about learning, which a competitive person like a top racing driver will obviously be very motivated to do if he's going to do it. If he's got some spare time and he wants to do it, he's he's not just going to do it for the sake of it. So he's going to compete. So um, I think it's been very interesting watching it. They're not probably as quite as adept as the absolute top e-racers, but... You know, I don't think it would take very much to make them so. But I think if you, I honestly don't think you would have the same, uh, I might get shouted down for this, but I don't think you would have anything like the same success ratio putting the e-racers in the real cars. No, I agree with you completely because one of the things that I find fascinating is when it comes to uh, the adaptation either way, I think... Uh, I think it's actually while I while I agree with you that uh, you would you certainly wouldn't have the same success rate if you went from uh, racing uh, online, however good these simulators are, to racing a real car. I think you I think it's harder in a lot of cases for real drivers to adapt to the sim world because when you go from sim to reality, yes, a lot of the stuff is. well it is literally real so so there are sort of consequences that come with that that make it harder but you're only adding inputs you're adding things that you can use to be 
to be quick, that sort of seat of the pants feel and just a sort of greater connection between you, the car and, and, and the road. Whereas I think when real world drivers first switch to sim racing, you're taking away inputs and i think that's really hard for real real world drivers to adapt to because suddenly this thing that you've been basing your driving on for 5 10 15 30 years some of these legends are are legends uh, for, <laughs> for for a reason so um i certainly agree that when it comes to the absolute peaks uh, you you definitely wouldn't have uh, the success that you see some of the top sim racers have it's not completely transferable but i think they would maybe get up to their level quicker than it would sometimes takes a, a legend to get up to speed on a on a on a sim race because uh, it is like uh, completely relearning a discipline it's a it's a great thing to to do. I must admit, I've uh, I don't really have a setup for for doing it, but I have. Been, I am now starting to get involved with doing some engineering work for you, Scott. So, uh, so uh, we, we had the first race where I think you learned that you need to listen to your engineers more, and we've, we're going to be building up complicated run plans and that kind of thing. So, uh, quite looking forward to that with your uh, esports antics. I think actually what I learned from that foray was uh, I, you can't you shouldn't fit wet tires by accident in a dry race. That was horrific. I'd like to emphasize that was entirely your fault. Nothing. Yeah, uh, fu- funny how the engineer doesn't take responsibility for the uh, for the accidental strategy change mid race. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't think to warn you not to put on wets in the dry. Evidently, you thought you were Kimi Räikkönen at uh, Malaysia a few years ago. I uh, honestly to... didn't realize that that was possible. I accidentally <laughs> pressed the wrong button. Now that is something that. Well, and I, I say that is something that doesn't happen in real life um last year in germany uh toro rosso put pierre gasly out on wets didn't they on a on a steel dry track so we're trying to second guess the elements yep it does happen and uh, there are cases of people pressing the wrong button nigel mansell i think had a bit of a, a mishap in canada one year pressing the uh pressing a button accidentally at an opportune uh moment uh well another question i really like this question this one's directed at you mark which is which of today's crop of f1 drivers would be most suited to racing an f1 in the 50s 60s with no downforce now that comes from someone i know i've only got the name chris for but because that question came via you i think first you can supply his surname before answering that question uh that is from uh sam um (laughs) have i written down the wrong name completely yeah (laughs) Sam yeah, Burgess. I'll just put the wrong name down. Yeah, well done. Sam yeah, Burgess, yeah, that is. Uh, yeah. Um, I like to call him Chris. Yeah, he's, he's known as Chris. Um, he's known <laughs> as Chris, the, the, the people who don't know him. Um, but to his <laughs> friends, he's called Sam. Um, I don't think it would be that different, actually. I, I think the this, this, this same top guys would still be on top. It would just, it would just be, it would look different watching it. Um, I think Hamilton, Verstappen would still be right up the, up the absolute top without downforce. Probably Leclerc too. Um, others who would be fantastic would be Ricardo, Sainz. I mean, Sainz in the wet, it's it's quite it's quite a similar in terms of uh, grip to power, which is what you you're varying. Um, the, the wet sort of goes some way to simulating how it would be without downforce. So um, the reduction in grip. Um, Watching Carlos Sainz in the wet is is fantastic. He's um, I, maybe it's because he's out in the rally car so often. He, he does, he, you know, he, him and his dad go have their own rally stage, and they they're always in it. Um, so he's he has this wonderful car control, and um, it, it, he always seems to be able to bring the car back from anywhere. And although that's not his natural style in the you know in the dry, 
Um, but he was, I mean, there were a few wet sessions when he was at Renault where he's, he was quicker than Hulkenberg, who was always the the barometer of, uh, you know, the, the wet weather driver. Um, I think Alex Albin would be great to watch. Uh, yeah, I think he's another one who can... Uh, very confident in, in having the car move around him. Um, but, yeah, by and by, I think this, the same guys would still be the, the the top guys. I think one other interesting name you could you could throw in, if, if we were to create a hypothetical situation where you're suddenly transplanting the drivers right now as they are in, into these cars, because um, I do agree that the cream would rise. An interesting case is Lance Stroll. Very good in the wets. He's had some very strong performances at low downforce tracks, Baku, Monza, even in dry conditions. So uh, I think I think he could be one whose uh, whose ability would show through a little bit more because he seems to struggle a bit more with the, the precision uh, in the in the higher downforce conditions. Yeah, it's true. He, um, when he's gone well, have been at uh, either tracks with low grip or um, you know low grip surface or low downforce. He's um, been quick at Baku. He's been quick at Monza. Um, so yeah, I think there's probably something in that. I was going to suggest that um, maybe it would be a case of the the drivers who who react uh, on feel um, rather than having to uh, work their way towards the limit would uh, would benefit more. And actually, um, I was going to elaborate on that more, but it leads quite nicely into another question we've got. So I'll just throw that question straight to, to you, Ed. It's from, you've only written V. Mackinnon, so I can only assume it's the Tommy Mackinnon that has sent this question in. Uh, they said, uh, if teams' access to data was limited, would that bring more randomness to Formula One, or would the better idea be just to scrap one free practice session? Well, uh, the less data there is to go through, the less well-honed, the cars will be the less time the drivers to fully acclimatise. I wouldn't necessarily say randomness is the word because I'm not, I'm not. I'm not sure randomness is is quite the, the thing we're looking for. Although, uh, given the name Mackinnon, I, I, I suspect that this is not um, not necessarily English as a first language. So, being too pedantic about the exact words, I'd say maybe unpredictability is the word that's being looked for there. And I think if you've got less time to prepare, less time to to fettle your car, to understand, to analyse, to try, etc., then you'll be operating by by nature in a slightly wider band so there'd be more time more opportunity for one team to be a little bit off you know a few tenths off its ultimate potential another team delivers the maximum of its potential so you get a little bit more uh, moving moving around i actually quite like the idea of of being able to cut back on some of the uh, amount that the sheer volume of uh, of number crunching and analysis that's done but we should also remember that a hell of a lot of it is done before you even get to the track so you'd have to, uh, as well as perhaps limiting access at the track, you'd have to try and limit some of the preparatory work away from the circuit. I think there is, though, a, there's an appeal to having... Uh, what, I mean, I, I'm really impressed with what the top Grand Prix teams do, the amount of work, the analysis they do, the the race rooms back at base, the the simulation stuff, the driver-in-loop simulation, the stuff... The stuff it, it, it's absolutely astonishing. And data is not just this magic answer that you print out and it's on a sheet of paper and it tells you everything. It's just a massive information from which you can start to extract the answer. So it's a massively impressive thing. So let's not fool ourselves into thinking it automatically does the work for you because it doesn't. But I think it is appealing to have a little bit more of a an organic and human relationship between the driver, the way they drive, how they're getting the best out of the car, the setup work, etc. And that would, by its very nature, create more unpredictability because you'll see you'll see people bouncing around within 
the, the, the kind of range of what their car's capable of. So I think it would be interesting. And if we have condensed race weekends, that's one thing that might make a difference. Because if you've got, let's say, if you if you have a weekend where you've got free practice in the morning and then you're into qualifying a few hours later and that's all you've got, then you're only going to have a few hours to analyse data. You will not be able to do the same amount of uh, of work. So it would interest me to, to, to see it. So what do you think, Mark? Yeah, I think it would randomise it a little bit, but um, I think the teams with the, uh, the the most powerful analysis tools um, would would still uh, be the top teams. Um, yeah, you'd uh, but you would get more um, dropped. You know, somebody's somebody's dropped out of the the window. Um, you see it occasionally. You see it maybe with a top team. You see it maybe three or four times a year. You'd probably be seeing it a lot more than that. But um, th- there would still be um, a more consistent performance from the top teams and from the teams below them. Yeah, I think unfortunately one of the rules is that the big teams and the best teams are still the biggest and the best teams, aren't they? If you give them less time, there's still uh, more they can uh, get through. Although it would be interesting because if you're having to suddenly scale down from a huge amount of of time to go through it to a smaller amount you might actually find it a little bit harder than somebody who's uh, used to operating on a little bit a uh, little bit less shall we say but but you see that with that that analytical capacity Hass is a great example of that in that they had a big problem last year and if they'd been a big team they'd have got onto the fundamental root cause of that problem a hell of a lot quicker than, than they actually did you know d- data and knowledge is uh is is power ultimately um well, I, we've got an enormous list of questions, and I think we're going to we're going to spread this out over a few podcasts. I, I think because one thing we do want to do on this podcast is bring back Scott's people, which has has stuttered recently. We've tried to bring it back a few times. Scott Mitchell assures me that he wants to make sure Scott's Mitchell, Scott's people, as it were, not Scott's Mitchell. He already is his own Mitchell. Uh, whether that's going to be a, a regular thing. So, explain yourself and what what the hell is going on. Yeah, um, well, unfortunately, in uh, these unprecedented and extraordinary times, unfortunately, we've all had to make sacrifices. Uh, and um, we, we, I'm, I've been trying to do right by my people and uh, manage things in an appropriate way. So uh, it, I, said, I definitely didn't just forget about it every time we had to do a podcast. This was a, this was a deliberately uh, managed situation uh, just to ration the use of, uh, of Scott's people. Uh, so rationed but not furloughed yes exactly exactly no and i hasten to add i'm not in a position to unfortunately uh, pay 80 percent or uh the or 2500 pound a month to to listeners of this podcast i'd love to uh but I, i simply can't but we we are back uh this time i asked uh uh, we're in lockdown at the moment, obviously, in a, in a lot of places. So if you could watch one race from any series uh, with a driver of your choice, what is it, with which driver and why? And I got a lovely uh, response. Obviously, people have forgiven me for my heinous crime of uh, just ignoring them for, for weeks. Um, quite a few F1 entries and then a few non-F1. So I'll rattle through some F1 ones quickly. Uh, Renton picked the 2006 Chinese Grand Prix. He would like to watch that with uh, Michael Schumacher, or in his words, a certain German driver in a Bridgestone shod car, which had been written off as having no chance of winning the race. Uh, so that that was uh, that was the the first one. Um, Phil Brannigan, off of Australian motorsport journalism fame, picked the 2001 Bathurst 1000 with John Cleland, 
He and Branners gets uh, additional points here for describing it as a ripper race, which I presume as an Australian he is obliged to do at least once during any given sentence. And he says he wouldn't have to say anything for nearly seven hours. Uh, having met Branners, John Cleland would be the winner from that scenario. Uh, another non-F1 from Alex Davy picked uh, the 1998 BTCC round at Donington with Nigel Mansell, and he would ask Nigel while watching where he got the performance from in that car. That is definitely one of my favourite touring car races of all time. Um, Alejo, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, picked the 24 Hours of Le Mans from 2015. He'd like to watch it with the Porsche winning trio of Nico Hülkenberg, Nick Tandy, and Ed's favourite, Early Bamba, uh, winning the race for the first time with the 919, battling the Audis, Toyotas, and also commenting on the largely disappointing Nissan GTR LM. Uh, Colm Lawless picked the 08 Italian Grand Prix with Sebastian Vettel, uh, which, good good choice. Alex Hunt going back much earlier than that, 40 years in fact. Sir Jackie Stewart and the 1968 race at the Nürburgring for a masterclass in wet weather driving. Uh, Loads more. Uh, Chris Hoffman picked Alexander Rossi and the 2016 Indy 500. There's obviously a theme here. Uh, Mansell is is obviously an exception, but there's a theme here of watching like career highlights with drivers. Um, obviously Damon Hill's highlight wasn't winning the 1998 Belgian Grand Prix, but it was a, it was a highlight within his career. And Alan Foraker said that he'd like to, to watch that with, with Damon winning for, for Jordan. Um, a couple of others, uh, because there were loads, I might even save some of these for, for next time. Uh, Natalie, who is an Envision Virgin Formula E fan, picks the 2009 Paris E-Prix with Robin Freins. Um, Formula E's first wet race with so much drama. I'm a massive Robin Freins fan, so I heartily endorse this. And Jamie Penning, I hope I pronounced your surname correctly there, uh, he would like to relive the, uh, the, the, well, he would like to, to, to relive the Monaco Grand Prix in which Jules Bianchi finished in the points. And he would obviously like to, to watch that back through with, with Jules. So a poignant one to end on. But I thought that was quite nice because obviously everybody would dearly love to, to still have Jules around. And I will end. I, I want more of these. So I'm going to ask this question again just because there's so many combinations here. I haven't even been able to get through them. And it's just nice because... You, every now and again you see a race that you've not thought of for a while but I would like to end just really quickly by asking the two of you we're in lockdown or shutdowns or whatever restrictions you want to call what you're living through at the moment if you could pick one race to watch back with one driver I'm putting you both on the spot what would it be and why for me I I go for a very obviously one that everyone remembers well which is the uh, the 1936 uh, 1935 rather German Grand Prix uh Tazio Nuvolari's famous victory for Alfa Romeo, one of the the great Grand Prix victories, the impossible win, I think it was uh, it was known as. Uh, but it'd just be fascinating to because I've I've always liked the idea if I had a time machine of going back to that era and just seeing these these great drivers, Nuvolari, Rosemeyer, Caracciola, and actually really being able to appreciate how the, you know the driving style, the approach, the the characteristics of the car, just everything they're doing because it, it you, it's something you can only really experience through reading about it. Uh, there's there's very little footage you can watch little glimpses of it but even compared to when you're getting into post-war racing there's a little bit more to go on but that that period is so uh so difficult to uh to really get a a firm sort of first hand, hand handle on it'd just be fascinating to see you know great victory understand how Nuvolari did it how he drove and what made him unquestionably a great driver and i just think that, that i just think it'd just be fantastic to see that that artistry uh at work 
Mark, can I put you on the spot as well? Do you have one that jumps to mind? Yeah, I'd like to sit with Mario Andretti in a few beers and watch the 81 Indy 500, um, which he won really, but was disqualified from or um, penalised from and lost out to Bobby Unser. And so we'd just um, like to re-examine that and uh, it might be a bit painful for Mario, but um, I'd, I'd just like to get the ins and outs of, because it was to do with how he rejoined the circuit after his pit stop. So I'd just like to get the real load down with Mario about that yeah i I have actually uh spoken to mario andretti uh about that an interesting uh side point for that is uh, at the time he this was at indianapolis a few years ago he was wearing the uh the 81 indy winners ring which he'd uh he'd firmly hung on to so he's in no doubt about who uh who won that race it was him rather than uh than uh unser so yeah it'd be uh, fascinating i'm gonna uh I'm going to answer my own question as well, just to complete the set. Um, it, it might well, and it might sound a bit uh, unimaginative. Um, I would just, I would really like to watch back Brazil 08 with Lewis. I'd really love to, because there's a lot in that race where that you can see um, where it sort of it looks like it's in control, then it sort of slips away a little bit, then it looks firmly in control, and then obviously it goes utterly insane. Uh, towards the end and there's just so much going on especially in the last sort of 15 20 minutes of the race that uh, I think it would just be uh, I think that would be a fascinating experience so I will uh, I'll be a bit boring go for something a bit more modern and a little bit more sort of uh, probably predictable but I'm nothing if not boring and predictable. Well, you obliged me to throw in my little story about that race in that I'd uh, organised to do a kind of a little bit of an atmosphere championship clincher piece with, with McLaren. And they said, yeah, if it's all looking good, 10, 15 laps from home, yeah, you can go into the garage, hang around in the garage, see how everyone reacts and everything. So, of course, I it was fine for me to go in because he was in a good position. And then the rain came and the pit stop happened and all this drama happened. It was meant to be kind of just like a calm cruise to the title, but it was fantastic. All the ups and downs of, of the whole thing. And then that, that just a, a kind of eruption when, uh, when it happened. I can still remember where there was a, a monitor that was uh, on a sort of pole, for want of a better word, in the, in the garage. It was sent spinning as uh, various mechanics ran. So, uh, yeah, that one I always remember very, very, uh, very, very keenly. Uh, well, Scott's people get on with board with that. So uh, tell Scott what you'd like him to uh, to, to to talk about uh, on that one in the future. What race you'd like to uh, follow with a, with a driver? And we promise to make sure Scott is a bit more diligent with looking after his people in future. Like I said, we have got loads of questions. We we've got through about a dozen today. We've probably got enough for another two podcasts. So we'll probably keep working through it. If your question wasn't answered on this one. Uh, very likely it's it's on the list if your question was uh, answered thanks very much for contributing if you do have a question feel free to throw it at us on social media if you throw it at me at ed straw f1 or throw it at scott who's at s mitchell f1 and uh, mark hughes who's at sport mph or at we are the race uh, we will add sport that to the MPH list market oh is it sport mph mark? Yeah, you're not better go. than me yeah it is you're quite right scott sport mph mark God damn it, Ed. <laughs> next time we have to next time we have to talk Twitter handles, I'm just going to throw it over to you to do it because you're clearly much more uh, effective at it. But yeah, do th- keep throwing questions at it. We might be able to just to keep up answering people's questions until uh, until Formula One gets going with the with the amount we come through. So uh, yeah, we'll probably be back next week. Well, we'll definitely be back next week, but probably with more questions unless there's a more pressing contemporary topic that uh, requires our attention. So stay home, stay safe, and join us next time on the Race F1 podcast. <laughs>